0: This is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed.
1: Behind me, one of the patrons chuckled and said, voice mocking, Aren't you a tough little girl? I turned to look at her, to study her face. She was taller than most Nilters, but fat and pale as any of them. She outbulked me, but I was taller, and I was also considerably stronger than I looked. She didn't realise what she was playing with. She was probably male, to judge from the angular, maze-like patterns quilting her shirt. I wasn't entirely certain. It wouldn't have mattered if I had been in Ratch space. ratch I don't care much about gender, and the language they speak, my own first language, doesn't mark gender in any way. This language we were speaking now did, and I could make trouble for myself if I used the wrong forms.
0: You just heard Audiophile Magazine's 2022 Golden Voice, ajua Ando, narrating Anne Leckie's sci-fi classic, Ancillary Justice. ajua Ando is one of Britain's leading actors with a long and distinguished career in theater and on television. She's won global acclaim in the series, The Bridgertons, as everyone's favorite character, the formidable and lively Lady Danbury. But audiobook listeners also know her from the wide variety of titles she so brilliantly narrates, ranging from science fiction to thrillers, from biography to speculative fiction, to a span of books by authors from the African diaspora, like Chiminanda Adichie and Nnedi Okorafor. The winner of many awards from Audiophile Magazine, Adwa, in the words of one reviewer, creates a stunning tapestry of characters throughout her work, while always maintaining a distinct narrative integrity. To listen to Ajua's narration with its vast range of characters is to be open to the world, both real and imagined. I spoke with this newest golden voice recently in a less-than-perfect overseas connection. And while we talk about audiobook narration in depth, I did begin with the series everyone is talking about, The Bridgertons, and I wondered if she was surprised by the series' stunning success on
1: both sides of the pond. Well, I knew that if I was doing a show with Shonda Rhimes and Netflix based on a series of internationally best-selling novels, there was a good chance it was going to have some traction. However, the level of fuss and delight the series has caused is beyond our expectations and and quite right, too, because if you go into a job with that level of expectation, you're heading for a fall. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm I think there are lots of things going on. I think the fact that the first season dropped on Christmas Day, when, frankly, lots of people whether Christmas is your religious holiday, if you have one or not, it's generally regarded as a time when people get together and it's a time of being in community, in communion with each other. So I think the fact that we were having a sort of Christmas that didn't do that because of the pandemic, because of people's sense of uncertainty about the future, I think to have a show like that uh, sort of fall into your lap on that day and give you that moment to go do you know I'm going to switch off my Covid brain for a few hours and I'm just, just going to get lost in something generally frothy and page ternary so that it became a show that for me was a, about a, a bit of light relief in amongst the heaviness of life but with content that also said It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what sexuality you are. It doesn't matter if you want to be a stay-at-home woman or a woman who goes out and makes her mark in the world. Or if you are somebody that just likes a stately home, a period frock or a bit of will they, won't they. There's something for everybody. So I think the embrace was a wide embrace at a time when people were feeling quite lonely and isolated. So I I think the day it dropped fell very much in our favour. It did what art should do. It transports people. And I think America has really grabbed the show. I think certainly for people of colour who may never have seen themselves in a historical drama unless they were being enslaved or having some sort of trauma foisted upon them, I think this gives just space to breathe out in a different way, in a historical way. Um, You know, it means that I get cards, photographs from little black boys and girls dressed as Lady Danbury, which I think is marvellous. And I know people of South Asian heritage have have lost their minds over season two, if it's their bag in the first place, to have the Sharma family there, to have the Sharma family involved in pre-wedding rituals, all that sort of thing, people have absolutely loved. And I just think the show is casting quite... Widely in terms of race, Uh, I think people are having permission to be in, see themselves reflected in a costume fictional drama that's also on steroids. As we know, nobody in Regency England was wearing, um, you know, psychedelic green as the Featheringtons do, and so you could say, oh, the levels of mixed racial casting that they have in the show are, are not historical. But I would argue that. Actually, the show is the most historical representation you would have seen of this country in that era um, that you will have seen to date anywhere, because it's a trading nation. Some of that trade is good. Some of that trade is terrible. But the trading was happening nonetheless. And there were people from right across the globe in the capital city of the leading trading nation. So there's an authenticity about that, that I really I really love, and I love the provocation of it. And I love that we can put all that stuff in what is, you know, essentially a a historical romantic drama. Yeah,
0: agreed. One book that you read recently is Charlotte Sophia, which is a novel... Based on the Queen, who was Lady Danbury's friend in the Bridgertons. And yeah. I just, that had to have been an interesting experience for you because you're meeting this woman uh, in two different genres, two different characters based on a real historical person.
1: Exactly. Charlotte Sophia was really great, sort of background foundational study for me. I knew some chunks about uh, Charlotte and It filled in extra chunks. No one ever paid much attention, which suited me just fine. Perhaps it was because I was never thought of as beautiful or charismatic like my sister Christiana before her misfortune, and everyone considered my complexion far too dark. I would overhear my mother whispering, Pity her broad nose, or keep her out of the sun, she's already too dusky. Thus, I was perennially kept under thick, white chalk. Also, you know, we're, we're shooting a prequel to Bridgerton that Shonda Rhymes is writing called Queen Charlotte. And it's all about the young life of Queen Charlotte, her coming to England, adapting to this court and this weird new way of things. And you see young Lady Danbury, Who's done her own navigating, helping the Queen with her navigation, uh, and you you get into the burgeoning uh, relationship of Queen Charlotte and George when he's still fairly uh, compass mentis. So Charlotte Sophia really helpful for all, all, all of that early research work, and I, I you know and I just think it's great to have a historical novel that says yeah the stuff you think you know about history here's another pass at it. Now, tell me, when did your love of acting begin? As I left the womb, probably. (laughs) um, I was just that kid, you know, the one that's always dressing up. I used to write stories. I used to direct plays. I used to make books. I would stitch paper together and all of that stuff. I would be walking up the street. I lived in a tiny rural Cotswold village. We moved there from Leeds uh, when I was three. So I had a very strong northern Yorkshire accent. And I was moving to the very rural uh, West country. So it's, you know, they're chalk and cheese. Uh, so I already had that delineating me as else from elsewhere. And then, you know, we were the black people for about a million miles. And it's the 1960s. So making a fictional world was sort of logical, I guess, If you in, in retrospect. I was the kid that um, I could make people laugh. I loved stories. I loved acting. We were a house full of readers, always reading. And I could also fight people. I learned how to do that pretty quickly and use a combination of all those things to keep myself going. And what about deciding acting as a career, which is a quantum leap? Yes. Well, as you can imagine, amongst the cows and sheep, there was not a lot of talk about going to drama school or anything like that. People just didn't do that where I lived acting was so left field. So I I was in all the school plays, and I would go and see shows at the Amateur Dramatic Society, although I never joined that. But I do remember going to see a play when I was 16. I was doing my A-levels. I was anorexic. My parents were getting divorced. I was depressed. Uh, And the only subject that I enjoyed doing was drama. And you weren't allowed to study drama until you were doing A-level. So you had to be a serious academic student before they let you get involved with that nonsense, because it wasn't considered a proper subject. Um, So one of the things we had to do was go to the theatre and write a report. So I went to see a play called Plenty by David Hare, 1979, uh, sat up in the cheap seats and wept my face off for two hours about a young woman during the Second World War who gets sent on special ops missions into France, underground, uh, working for the resistance against the Nazis, and her life is transformed. And I knew when I saw that play, there was something about that sense of finding your best self um, that I was yearning for, and the sense of being lost that I was experiencing, that I had felt from the character on the stage so deeply that it made me weep. And I think at that moment, I really understood the power of theatre and the power of acting and that um, transformational ability of storytelling to bring people and experiences together in, in unexpected ways. And I have told that story a lot, particularly to drama students or young actors, to say, there may be somebody in the audience who needs you to save their life. So never phone it in, always be authentic and real because you're doing soul's work and you need to give it the reverence and the attention that it needs because it's important. So that's a little speech I trot out to acres of students relentlessly. Being an actor is not about being famous. It's about studying your craft and being the translator of what was in the writer's mind through the character into your heart and from your heart to the audience's heart. And how did you move into audiobooks, Aljua? Audiobooks, I started doing them in the early 90s uh, when everything was still recorded onto cassette. And I started off doing English as a foreign language. Um, There were lots of teaching tapes. So you would do little dramas speaking very slowly for um, audiences who were learning English. So that was my first audio world. And then from that, my first audio book was the very first Alexander McCall Smith, The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. And in fact, next month I'm going to be recording the latest one. So I'll have done every single Number One Ladies Detective Agency audio book since he started doing them. Your glasses, ma said Maramotsui. Mama Maramotsui leaned back in her chair. She was smiling. I wondered when you were going to notice, Ma. Do you like them? They're new. Maramotsui knew from long experience that Mama Maramotsui was sensitive to criticism. The only response one could safely give if asked one's opinion on any aspect of her appearance was to say that it was perfect. Any reservation even in the form of a momentary hesitation, could give rise to a display of hurt feelings that could quickly become a more than momentary sulk. Not prolonged beyond the evening, of course. Maramotswi had never known Mamakutsi to keep a state of huff going for more than a few hours, but it was best to avoid such occasions altogether, she thought. "'They are very fine glasses,' she said. "'They are clearly very fashionable.' It was just the right thing to say. And from that, then I just, I started doing everything. I also did animated stuff, lots of audio books for kids, training stuff for organisations, all all that sort of stuff. So I I did all of that stuff as well. And then more and more audio books alongside loads and loads of radio. I adapted stuff for radio as well. Um, I produced stuff for radio I'm sort of protective over doing it well because I like to listen to it. How do you prepare?
0: How do you prepare when you're about to narrate an audiobook?
1: I I get a a real range of books, which I love. I get lots of sci-fi stuff and I get lots of crimey stuff, a bit of romance stuff, but I get a lot of any combination of the above set somewhere where there are people uh, who speak different languages. So I will get stuff that's set across the African diaspora, pretty regularly, uh, sometimes the South Asian diaspora as well. And I speak French and German. I'm all right with pronouncing those languages correctly. If we go further afield, I'm very insistent on, um, in the first instance, if you want me to do a book and it has other languages in it, or it has pronunciations from uh, countries from across the globe, you have to send me all the pronunciations ahead of time. I want place names, people's names pronounced by a native speaker. And if there are sentences in another language, I want a native speaker to record them slowly. And then at natural conversational speed so that somebody listening to the story who speaks that language is not going to be thrown out of the story by being cross at mispronunciations or something so garbled they can barely understand what's being said so I'm I'm really hot on that stuff because I just think it's disrespectful not to and I and I I would be embarrassed to do otherwise so that's that's the first step get me the pronunciations I will read the text through uh, particularly so you know you, you don't have the classic thing of uh, right near the end a character goes and as i returned to the welsh hills of my childhood and you've done them i don't know as if they've come from I don't know, Birmingham or something, and you're like, oh no, the whole book, Um, you know, that's just ring fence yourself now from the horror. Sometimes I don't read right to the end of a book, particularly if it's a thriller, because I want the excitement, uh, like the reader, of finding out who done it, or, you know, that sort of thing. So I'll I'll read that live, as it were, and I love doing that, because I want that excitement in my voice, and the shock of discovery and all all those things. And then I think the other thing that I try and uh, identify is whose is the voice, the narrator's voice, if there is a narrator, who are they speaking to? Are they a reliable narrator? Are they an unreliable narrator? Are we travelling through time? Are we going to have a character who starts at 15 and ends up at 85? Uh, And then I think about where they may be from. I think about their history. And then when I'm actually narrating, I try to zone out of the world I'm in. So I hate being interrupted. If I'm in mid-flow, it's like, don't interrupt me. Wait, let me get to the end of it. And then I can just get lost in the story. It's almost like being a, a spiritualist or something. And the voice comes through from wherever it is and it comes out of your mouth.
0: Do you reach out to authors, for example, if the author is living like Alexander McCall Smith, you've done all these books, or or Anne Leckie for for
1: example? Yeah. So Sandy and I we've been in touch very occasionally. Generally I don't like talking to authors. It's a different skill. They've unless there's something incredibly confusing or something that I feel like I'm not going to be able to communicate properly to the listener because I I'm a bit lost you know, if there's a sentence that that I'm lost in, then I might get hold of the author. And sometimes it will be because, you know, nobody proofreads anything anymore. I've quite often find audiobook readers are the first proper proofreaders. So it may just be something that's a horrible typo, or it may be something uh, where the author stylistically is going for something that I'm not being bright enough to catch on to. So So then I might be in touch with them. But other than that, I feel like you know the author does one version and I'm doing a different version they're communicating directly um, from their heart to the reader's heart I am communicating from the writer's heart through my translation of it into the, the listener's ear so it becomes a different thing and it becomes its own thing I think that's exciting too. And what about
0: determining the voices for characters? Do you have a process for doing that? The accents obviously are a given through the text, but just the tonality,
1: et cetera, et cetera, yes. for different characters. I know it sounds like, like I'm a hippie, but they generally tell me, they tell me where they want to be situated. There'll be a place where you just go, mm-hmm, there we are, and you're off. Because I think, you know, our voices shift all the time. So, if I was at home in Gloucestershire, I'd be talking to my mates like that. Do you know what I mean? It'd be, it'd be, it'd be a bit more like that. Everything would be a bit elided and a bit, it'd be, the ang- accent would be stronger. Whereas if I'm talking to you, you're getting my sort of user-friendly, all-purpose voice. And then if I go up north to see family up there, my mum's originally from Liverpool, and we lived in Leeds when I was little. If I'm with anybody northern, then my accent will start to, it'll start to drift and the consonants get more pronounced and, you know, it's all a bit more, it's it sort of dug in in a way that it's not if I'm in the West Country. You know, we, we freight our, our voices with our history. So I like to see what the history is and where the character places their voice because of it. You act in television and on
0: stage yes. and on radio and, and you obviously reading audiobooks. How is just having your voice different
1: from having an entire physicality to create a character? It's the thing I love. There's something called the Norman Beaton Fellowship, which is an acting prize that actors go up for, which gives them a six month contract as a BBC drama actor on the radio over here. And I generally do a sort of tutorial uh, with them during a couple of days when they're you know, in competition with each other and workshopping. And and I think there's such a joy in having only one superpower available to you in this branch of storytelling, and that is your voice. So I, I say to them, because it's the same for radio drama as it is for audio drama, everything, the whole world is in your voice, and it's going from your voice to the listener's ear and if you're doing an audiobook you are the whole orchestra so you have to hold the lines of music for all the different characters the narrator being one you have to uh, hold the um, the stakes the emotion the time of day the age the region the history the sense of the perspective that the narrator uh, gives uh, in an overarching way. You have to hold that all the time. It's like you have to keep those musical lines. You are the whole choir, the whole orchestra, and you have to keep them alive all the time. So I don't like doing pickups cold. You have to play me the section that we're covering because I need to know emotionally and tonally where I was in that moment. So I think I I want to say to um, actors uh, who are doing audio stuff, you have to keep all those balls in the air all the time it's an act of great concentration to do it properly and give yourself notes as you're going along if you discover something about a character the way they may break up a sentence or how breathy they are whatever it may be make a little note of it so that you've you've got that available to you when you come back to it but know that you have to keep all those balls in the air yeah it's just an act of delight for me to go yeah you can't pull that funny face or do the silly walk or raise that eyebrow or any of the other stock in trade things that we do you have to raise the eyebrow with your voice you know it's that sort of thing
0: it also is so intimate because literally with audiobooks you're in my ear (laughs) literally in my ear as opposed to theater where your voice has to hit the last seat of the the balcony yes
1: Yes. so there is that intimacy and there's a sort of intimacy that means that uh literally the geography of your mouth to the microphone will shift depending if it's a you know if it's is it a car chase is it a sex scene is it absolute fear in the middle of the night is it a great big rowdy party what is it so geographically you need to make space for yourself to move in to move out to move about whatever it is you need to do to communicate but that there's something about that intimacy that sort of deserves a respect I think the listener is giving you this great attention is giving your voice, your storytelling, this great attention. And it's such an ancient tradition, isn't it? Storytelling is as old as as we are. And so you're doing something that is different. You're, you're literally doing the physical, the ancient physical, physical art, the storytelling art, in, in, in a way that is different from any other sort of storytelling. Um, I've, I find that quite thrilling, actually. The other thing that, that's so different is, of
0: course, both theatre and television, they are collaborative. You are a tool in the toolbox, a very important tool, but nonetheless, it's a big box. But with audiobooks, it's you. Perhaps you're working with the director or producer, but you're doing it on your own. Can you talk about the difference of doing it alone and doing it in the company of others?
1: Yeah, I love doing audiobooks on my own. I don't really like having directors. Sorry, directors. I don't, <laughs> or producers, because there's a bit of me that's a bit like, who's telling the story here? Are you telling the story or am I telling the story? If I'm telling the story, let me tell the story. What is useful is, you know, obviously a misread, because it's interesting the way that when you're going at it, your brain will rework the sentence. It will fix a certain logic that may not be on the page. So uh, misreads obviously is good. And also sometimes to just, I didn't get the sense of what you were saying. Um, that can be helpful. But generally, I like being left to my own devices. Then it's me and the, it's me and the reader and, uh, and the characters. And actually, and the studio engineer, because actually studio engineers are brilliant and they quite often do not get credited. I, I like to be friends with the studio engineer. I like us to be sort of involved in a joint enterprise where we go on the journey of the story together. They're my first audience. You know, they're the audience I see. So I see how they're responding to the story and um, they're my first port of call, I think.
0: Well, you also narrate a number of books by African writers yeah. like Chimananda Adichie or Nnedi Okorafor. Yeah. Well, first of all, we're seeing so many more books by women uh, and men of recent African or African descent, Yeah. Um, which is wonderful. And I think the importance of these stories are becoming more and more recognized.
1: yes. Obviously, I love these stories because lots of them that, you know, there's a resonance in them that I recognize from my own life. Whether it be the story of a a young West African girl making her way through life. And I I recognize some of the conversations or some of the street scenes or the dilemmas of the characters. Or it's the young African girl uh, in Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Americana doing her online blog about the difference between Black Americans and Africans. I I know all of that stuff, and and, and it's just lovely to see the conversations happening. I think, you know, we all want to see stories that have us in them in various ways. And at one level, we're all unique human beings, and there is no us unless it's the collective us. But at another level, there are life experiences that we have had, that don't often get um, put into stories. And that's changing, and I'm thrilled about that. And I want to see more of that. I did a a book called An Ordinary Wonder, set in Nigeria. And it was uh, about a a child who was uh, one of uh, two twins and had been assigned a male gender at birth. But actually, their gender was indeterminate, and they'd always felt themselves to be female. Mother would be gone for a while. Bura padded silently in. This was the best and the worst thing about being twins. We really surprised each other. She smoothed the sash on her dress. Eyed me, warily. Can I try it on? It popped out of my mouth. No, just for a minute. Bura's lower lip vanished under the top one. It was unfair to ask. Mother said Jehovah God would punish us all if she encouraged my sinful habits. I was maybe five the first time it happened. Mama Ondo, my grandmother, had been visiting. She'd set aside her wig, orange headscarf still tied on, while she napped on the cool veranda. I'd never realized till then that she sometimes wore one. I'd been shocked by the sight of her scalp, bald all around the edges as if someone had plucked her clean. I'd arranged the wig on my head, tiptoed to the hallway mirror, and as the world slid into proper focus, made the happy discovery that I was, in fact, a girl. The writer rather brilliantly used traditional stories of Ye Manja, the river goddess, who absolutely sat in that um, middle, flexible gendered space use that as a sort of restorative story for this child to navigate their world. And I loved that. I loved that bringing together of what one would think of as Western world conversation with an absolute tradition from the Yoruba tribe to help solve a child's dilemma in a story. I I could have cried. It was so fantastically put together. So I think those things are happening more and more. And in this country, I co-sponsor a prize called the Future Worlds Prize for speculative fiction and science fiction writers of colour who are as yet unpublished to submit work towards, you know, helping them on their authorial way. Our first author is being published this summer. So, you know, the world is our oyster, I think, in terms of storytelling now. Well, one book that you
0: narrated that had to have made a big impact on you is Island Queen by Vanessa Riley. Yes. What a book. What a story.
1: Vanessa and I had a drink when I was in Atlanta, which was so lovely to actually meet up. And Vanessa was a writer who I would call every now and again and say, "Okay, what's going on here? Because the story is so rich and complex. There were times when I just needed to have super clarity so that the listener would have super clarity as well. And yes, as a result of that, I'm part of a team of producers who are um, developing the book now into a series. I've lived a long time. I'd hate to reinvent myself now. The Demerara Council can't steal my life those men can have none of what i built the curtains flutter the gauzy sheer like fine laghetto bark spun into a veil frames the empty street my restless anxious heart begins to spin Bedmistress's mistress's nervous tapping reminds me i alone am not at risk all coloured women are. So yeah, Vanessa is the queen of research and putting that research into a, a narrative that is sort of not only is a is a thrill, but is also a hugely powerful educational tool at the same time. And for me, I love that. You know, that's what I loved about Half a Yellow Sun, Chimamanda's book, that you could learn about the Biafra War through following the life of one family. And I I think the best books can do a, a multi-layered thing, and I and I and I really enjoy that. Do you listen to audiobooks? I do listen to audiobooks sometimes, but not very often, because I find it's a bit of a busman's holiday, and um, I find myself listening with an audiobook reader's ear rather than a listener's ear, and that's not always helpful.
0: It always strikes me that audiobook narrators get to play such a vast
1: range of characters, much more than theatre or film actors. How fabulous. I remember playing Nancy in Oliver Twist. You know, this is in the early 90s. Nobody would cast me as Nancy in Vision at the time because a black Nancy, who would ever have thought of such a thing? Although historically, it's absolutely completely feasible. And when you're doing an audio book, you so much more deeply into characters you'd never be cast up in uh, in real life. Uh, 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 and if you're doing something like, a, you know, an Anne Leckie uh, mega world, you, you know, you'll be playing the whole of of a spaceship consolidated down into one robot who actually is richly drawn and has an emotional interior life of their own. So you get to do the most fabulous things. I love stuff like that. And I love the challenge of going, okay, do your voice. Do your voices. Bring these people to life. Adwoa, thank you very
0: much. And thank
1: you for the hours of great
0: listening you've given me. And congratulations on being named a 2022 Golden Voice.
1: It's very nice. Thanks, Joe. You
0: are most welcome. That was Audiophile Magazine's 2022 Golden Voice, Adwoa Ando. Look for reviews of Adua's work at audiophilemagazine.com, where you can get the backstories of many of your favorite narrators, as well as reviews of hundreds of audiobooks. And follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.